Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless this is nine-year-old Fernanda Prates coming from the past to check up on things. In which case, don't be alarmed. I really am your host, Fernanda Prates, in the sense that this is still my name and hosting this podcast really is one of the things that I do. But obviously, it's not the main thing. I mean, I'm also Fernanda Prates, the world-renowned archaeologist, and Fernanda Prates, the award-winning inventor of all those things that needed inventing. And also, Fernanda Prates, the marine biologist who single-handedly rescued upwards of 562 infant harp seals from the blood-soaked hands of commercial hunters. I also did totally marry Harvey from Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and I grew natural boobs. I really settled into my singing voice too, and I also totally enjoy hanging out on this planet that is in no way headed toward irreversible climate catastrophe and or authoritarian dystopia. Nope, that's like Totally not a thing here in the future. Everything's going just as we planned. Feel free to go back to the past and live your life just as you normally would. I mean, would it hurt to maybe start adjusting your expectations a little? No. Can you maybe benefit from interacting with real-life kids your age instead of fictional creatures and make-believe bodyguards whose red bathing suits will help permanently tarnish the relationship to what you will come to see as a clearly atrocious and misshapen body? Maybe. Do you really need to personally experience chunky highlights in order to understand why no one should ever experience chunky highlights? I'll, I'll leave that up to you. Other than that, though, you do you. It all totally works out for us in the end. We are very clearly thriving. In case you are not nine-year-old Fernanda Prates coming from the past, hi. As you may have noticed, I might have embellished some details, you know, about my personal baby seal saving endeavors and the planet's general ability to not be a soul-crushing hellscape, but I did not lie about one thing. I really am your host, Fernanda Prates. And while that may not look like much or feel like much or frankly be much, it is something. Something that I would argue should be celebrated every week, but even more so on this particular week on account of a very special occasion. Well, a doubly special occasion, you could say. Not only is it my birthday, 
technically one day past my birthday by the time you're listening to this, but also it's our 50th episode. If you count like bonus episodes, what's up there, uploaded into the world, 50. I know. It's like half of 100 and 50 times one and one fifth of 250. And I'm just saying random numbers now, but 50. Cool, cool number. All round and shit. Yeah, yes. And of course, you best believe that a special occasion calls for a special guest. Today we are joined by the one, the only Jimmy Smith. I know you know damn well who Jimmy Smith is and there is absolutely no need for an intro, but I will do one anyway because I'm that nice. Smith is a former MMA fighter who made an incredibly successful transition to the commentary booth where he went on to call fights for M1, Affliction, Bellator, and the UFC. He is now the host of SiriusXM's Unlocking the Cage and ESPN's UFC Fight Camp, as well as the voice of WWE Monday Night Raw. And while I don't know that much about pro wrestling, I do know enough to understand that that is kind of a big deal. Smith is also just one of those energetic, fun, and warm people who can probably talk to you about basically any subject forever and make it all sound incredibly interesting. But I don't need to tell you that because that's a conclusion you come to on your own after listening to this episode. Anyway, here's our chat. Enjoy it or don't just... Keep in mind that it will be weird if you don't. Also, the interview was recorded a week ago, which is why there isn't really any talk of current MMA-related happenings or event-specific matters. You have to settle for basically the entire rest of the internet for that. I'm sorry, but also, you're kind of welcome. I will admit, when I made the invite to my guest today, I didn't really know if he was going to be able to say yes, considering that, as far as I know, the average human day only contains 24 hours. Nevertheless, he made room on his insane schedule, and I am honored. Welcome to the podcast, Jimmy. Hey, how you doing? So, so happy to be on here with you. You sound so excited. I love it. That's the right energy. Oh my God. You know, it becomes a a thing when you're, when you're in broadcasting, I guess it's like, you just learn to speak like that when you have a mic in front of your face. So that's a big part of it. It's like, you learn to like turn on when there's, when there's a mic in front of you, but yeah, it's a similar kind of thing now. Like Mm. whenever I do a podcast or that, and, and I hear that a lot, it's like, you know, the energy level, you just get used to projecting that all the time. And yeah. People wonder why it's so exhausting being doing a TV show or, or, or doing commentary and anything like that. It's like, because you're at 11 all the time. It's just. I can't imagine. Yeah. Like, I do this, like, I do two shows for like three hours a week tops, and I'm like, I'm done. I'm done, like, projecting humanity to the world. Like, I just want to go back to, to just like being barely a human in my sweatpants. And you're just coming off your show, which lasts. Three hours. You're three hours on air, right? Almost uh, every day. I'm three hours on air every single day. Yeah. Not That's to mention the, the WWE stuff, which is another three hours. That's another three hours. And and the weird thing is that when I when I first started, Michael Cole, who does SmackDown, and he's mm-hmm. done WWE for years and years and years, he goes. Hey man, you're doing raw. It's a really long show. It's three hours. And I said, the UFC is <laughs> seven remember. hours. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but UFC is about seven, six, maybe Bellator's five or six. Mm-hmm. So three is just like, oh, okay, cool. Three. I mean, I, that's fast for me. Yeah. So it's just one of those things that I, you don't get. You, you just, if you, if you haven't done it a lot, mm-hmm. the time scale for fights is very different than any other live show you could possibly do. How do you, so my, my husband, he is a play-by-play guy here in Mexico. And he was saying something similar, like when he was doing, I think NASCAR, I don't know. I don't understand other sports, but uh, the same thing. But one thing I'm always like in awe of is how do you maintain your voice? I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I guess I'm used to it. I, I don't yeah. know. I've rarely, one time on a show, this is in Kansas city. I was doing a mm-hmm. Bellator and I got sick. Like it wasn't, that bad. So I started losing my voice the night before. Yeah. And then by the time he woke up for the show, I had no voice and there was literally nothing I could do about it. They did, um, a, like, a, like a tea thing. They tried to okay. do all this stuff and I just had no voice at all. And there was nothing anybody could do about it. It was just, they kept giving me tea. They kept trying to like get my voice and I couldn't, I, I had lost my voice. I got sick. So that's the only time I've ever had a voice issue. Did you it, do I've the had other show? problems, but not that. I just did the show. I just had no voice, and I was talking like that. And it, you can find <laughs> it somewhere. It's, it's Ben Askren versus Dan Hornbuckle was the main event. Yeah. It was in Kansas City at this thing called Power and Light, so it was outdoors, and I had no voice. And it, it was just – it's like the, it was like if like you're running a marathon and your leg starts yeah. cramping and you got to mm-hmm. run 26 miles, it's okay. Well, I just limped the whole time. That was, I, just, I just didn't have a voice. So – I just still had to do it. And you know what's funny? I'll share this with you. And I guess I'm sharing with all of your listeners at the same time. I have one. I have like five theory. listeners who can share. Doesn't matter. Whatever. <laughs> all five listeners can hear this. You know what used to happen to me when I was a little kid? I grew up in mm-hmm. the Central Valley of California, which is really hot and it's really dry. And when I was a little kid, for no reason at all, mm-hmm. I would get these massive nosebleeds because oh. my sinus was a dry out. Yeah. So, I was just sitting there watching TV and boom, it was like a grenade went off in my nose and I would, okay. And I would just take my shirt, stuff it up my nose and I would sit Mm -hmm. there and watch what I was watching. So throughout my childhood, periodically during the summer, I would get these like severe nosebleeds because my sinuses would dry out and they haven't happened to me since I was a little, the last one I had, I, I'm not joking. I was in college Mm. and I was sitting there in class and it was one of the weirdest things to ever happen to me. I'm sitting there in the middle of class, and of course, I'm in the middle of the row. Mm-hmm. So in this huge lecture hall, and in my head, Fernanda, I went, man, I remember getting nosebleeds in weather like this, and my nose exploded. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, sh-. and I just grabbed my shirt like I did when I was a kid and shoved it into my nose. I was excuse me, excuse me. I had to walk over all these people, and I'm, you know, whatever, 22, 21, and I went to the bathroom and just stayed there for like, you know, however long it was, so my nose stopped bleeding. I was like, son of a bitch. And I was, <laughs> you and, materialized the bleed. Right. So that was the last time that happened to me. And this was, you know, 20 years ago. But I have this irrational fear mm. that at some point in the middle of the show, my nose is going to just push. Because when the red is really dry, that used to happen. Yeah. But it hasn't oh, happened in yeah. a long time. So, But you, yeah. you might have just materialized it again. Yeah. So, I, <laughs> <laughs> But it's my one kind of like, oh, man. You know, if like, it happens, really, oh, it's my fault. Yeah. It's the show. No, it's not your fault. Well, I'm at home now, so I don't <laughs> care. Like, this, I worry about like a live show. Like this is okay. Yeah. Nosebleed. Like, I still talk with my my shirt shoved up my nose, but yeah, you have these <laughs> weird like live show things where you go, you know, you like people ask me, you're, you know, what if this? What if that? Like, well, you mm-hmm. just grab your microphone and deal with it. I, yeah. I work in the WWE where they smash people into the table and it destroys the <laughs> table. 
and I'm, I got to keep going. And, and what do you do with a pro wrestler like squirming and thrashing around under my chair? Well, I just keep working. I don't know what to tell you. I think the, 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 the audience understands it's live TV. So mm-hmm. when things happen, A, they're extraordinarily forgiving because yeah. it's live TV. And number two, they, it makes them feel like it's real. Mm-hmm. When you go, hey, our mic just went off, so I hope you can all, you know, whatever. I had to switch headphones, or you know, whatever yeah. the deal is. It makes me like, oh, this is this is live because there's a problem, <laughs> right? There's a thing that happened that's crazy, and you know, you just kind of throw up your hands and go, well, live TV. What are you going to do? Yeah, and, and I, I've done that like- many times. They might feel like they're in on the moment as well. I feel like there's yeah. something like when you talk about, I don't know, like the commentators, like for instance, Michael Bisping, uh, a lot of people love him because he's like very organic. Like and a lot yes. of people, I think it really comes across when you like just you're in the moment and you let people in the understanding that you're just a person doing a thing that is on live television. Like there's really not that much of a mystery. Consciously, I know that, but I could never do what you do. I'd be like too anxious. I'd be terrified. <laughs> yeah, but, but there's a, there's a, a, how can I put it? There, 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 there's, there's a line mm. where you also can't just be a fan. Like, yeah, of course. It's great that they're real and great with the stuff. But, but I think a, a problem that happens a lot is, too many broadcasters in MMA are encouraged to be more fanboy than broadcaster mm, where okay. in, in ways that like, you know, and this is, you know, it's not a secret or anything, so I can say it. Yeah. Antonio Tarver during PBC would literally take off his headset and start coaching. <laughs> he would start like talking to the boxer and start talking to the corner. Mm-hmm. And I had to say, Antonio, you can't do that while you're commentating. Mm-hmm. That's like an ethical line. We can't cross. Yeah. You can't, help one person win like, like you're not supposed to do that yeah they might be your friend or what you can't yeah. effing coach dude that, that's <laughs> really unprofessional we're in the position we're in right yeah and so there's some of that where you got to go hey whoa like yeah you, when he got into it with with um colby covington mm. i don't know if you remember mm-hmm. that when he was on the fox desk and they got yeah. into it and i was in a because i was working for the UFC at the time i'm in a I just called the fight. I, it was Rafael dos anjos and, mm-hmm. and and colby covington i just called that fight and we're in the the van and we're watching the post-fight show on our phones, right? Mm-hmm. And the mood in the van was very like, he should not do that. Ugh. Remember, these are producers. They're like, you know, mm-hmm. producer. They're going, man, this, you know, that isn't a weigh-in, dude. You're not supposed to yell and scream at a guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so, <laughs> yeah, so there's, th- there's always a line between what, what mm-hmm. fans might appreciate yes. and what like your producer's going, hey, Jimmy, how about you don't start yelling at, you know, the, the final, whatever it is, whatever it might be. There are also these broadcasting lines that, yeah. that get a little blurry, you know? So that's another thing that you got to look out for. Yeah. And we see that a lot, like, um, with UFC broadcasts. Like, I think yeah. it was Kiesa. Who was it? Someone who left. Who left. No, it was. Uh, now I'm, I'm, it's escaping me. But somebody, like, actually left. The, I think it was Paul Felder, maybe, who, like, left the table left at the, the desk while a teammate was fighting. And I'm like, I think that's kind of like a reasonable thing to do. Just like I, to I avoid. I guess, see, I, yeah, well, there are always going to be ethical lines when someone yeah. who is currently fighting is calling a fight. Yes, that's right. True. Right. So, so if I'm, and, and my example is always, you know, Paul Felder is another example, when, when he called out Justin Gaethje, mm-hmm. when he's interviewing him and, that is not the time or place to call out a fighter is like post fight interview. Like that's mm-hmm. not when you're supposed to do that. And, and like when, um, if we, when we do these thing called, you know, fighter meetings is what they're called. Yeah. 
we sit down with the fighters and they talk about mm-hmm. their camp or here's what's going on or yeah. here's what's going well or here's what's not going well. If I'm, let's say, Michael Chandler and Paul Felder goes, how did camp go? Mm. None of your business. <laughs> I might fight you in six months, yeah, right? So, that's true. you know, you can't see the broadcasters as mm-hmm. potential opponents or else mm-hmm. it all falls apart because yeah. I don't trust you. I'm not going to tell you. You're not, I'm not expecting DC to be neutral about a John Jones fight. Yeah. Now he has to be in order for us to, to get a real broadcast out of it mm-hmm. that makes any sense. But you can't expect John Jones to tell DC how his camp went or whatever, yeah. anything. Oh, you know, my, my feet hurt or I have a bad back. No, F you. I don't like <laughs> you. You don't like me. So, you know, the, the, once again, those, those lines get blurry mm-hmm. when you have yeah. fighters who are currently fighting as yeah. commentators. So there's always that issue. And, and even former fighters like you know michael bisping's retired he still reacts like a fighter to certain things where he'll you know get in somebody's face or like Mm -hmm. and you're like dude as a broadcaster you probably gotta stay away from that a little bit Mm -hmm. but you know it it happens and and i think he's gotten much better much better over the last couple years about that kind of thing yeah and you can see him correcting himself sometimes he'll say a thing and he'll realize it's very like heated and you see him like two minutes later, like, oh, I, I shouldn't have said that. And I think that's kind of like part of the process. And right, it's reps yeah. too, right? You've been at this, like in in like MMA and combat sports in general for a very long time. I wanted to go back a little bit. But first, I was Please. doing some research because I'm a very, I'm a journalist. That's what I do. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And I read that you were, and I'm sorry if this is like public domain information and I didn't know, were you a a teacher, like a seventh grade mathematics teacher. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> oh my, that is that is so hard to place. That is wild information. Right, when was that? Yeah. Um, during my fight career. So oh. this was like 2005, 2006. Um, you know, when I was fighting, mm-hmm. I worked for the Long Beach Unified School District. That's what I mm-hmm. did. Um, Long Beach, California. Yeah, that's what I did when I was trying to when I was trying to get my fight career going. So what I, I would teach from six in the morning to. Um, whatever it was, uh, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon because yeah. it allowed me to, to, to get off in time to go train. So <gasps> what I did is I worked for the school district doing a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff, mostly testing kids, but teaching every now and then. Okay. So what I did was I, uh, my, my mother's a math teacher. She did sixth grade math and okay. she called me and she goes, a seventh grade teacher is out. She's having some kind of problem. Mm-hmm. Can you jump in and teach the year? And I went, <laughs> yeah, okay. Cause it, it was a lot of my mom's former students or whatever. And I was mm-hmm. down the hall from my mother. So, Jumped in there and taught seventh grade math. I taught high school chemistry. I taught. Um, wow. I'm trying to think what else did I teach? Uh, those were the longest ones I had was, was seventh grade math. Once again, I taught a whole summer school class for, of chemistry. Yeah, a few other things. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was my job. I was a teacher. And then I got, uh, you know, other opportunities and I took him, but that was, that was my day job from the time I graduated college to, to uh, 2008, 2006. That's so you're telling me here comes the boom stole your life story. Kind of, yeah. Except I was in better shape than <laughs> yeah, here comes the boom. Um, so I guess that's the, the different thing. But I w- it was the other way around. I wasn't a teacher who got an MMA. I was an mm-hmm. MMA looking for a job that allowed me to, to, to train. train. Yeah. So that was why I did it the way I did it. So um yeah, that's how how my work my life worked out at the time. Yeah. You were competing professionally at the time already? Yeah. Holy yeah, shit, did the so, kids know? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, you know. So you're like the coolest teacher. Kind of. It also scared them a little <laughs> bit. Um, so there was some of that. I was pretty cool. It, it, mm-hmm. it was just, 
you know, it, that age is tough, man. It's just yeah. when you think about your life and how you mm-hmm. were sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, it's just hormones are kicking in and you're, yeah. you're people would just flip out over weird stuff. And, and yeah. it was also one of those things where they, they're, they're not young enough that they're terrified of authority, but yeah. they're not old enough to not come to school. <laughs> so they're kind of right in the middle. Because in high school, like bad kids, and when I walked in to t- teach high school mm. chemistry at mm. Millican High School in Long Beach, I walked in, I go, look, this is effing summer school. Mm. I don't care where you sit. I don't care about eating and all the you know, dumb shit that, yeah. that teachers care about. I don't care about any of that stuff. Don't fuck with each other. If you don't want to do your work, fine. But just sit there and don't fuck with anybody else and everything's fine. And the kids looked at me. They were like, cool. And I was like, great. Like, you know, and they sat there and they would do their work. And if they didn't do their work, I didn't care. They just, but don't make my life or or the other student's life any more difficult. And they went, oh, my God. Like, (laughs) I thought one of the problems was that you treat them like kids and expect them to act like adults. And and they're just not going to know. You know, when they got to ask to use the, the restroom. Yeah. And yet you go, why aren't you more mature? It's like, well, they can't piss without permission. So yeah, true. Yeah. So uh, it's funny. First, the first day the kid raises his hand and goes, can I use the restroom? I was like, dude, Jesus Christ, don't ask me. You get up and use the goddamn restroom. I don't care. You know, like, so there's a limit to my authority here. Like your body is still you're pretty 16. much your body. I'm going to treat you like you're seven. Like, you know, get up and you're not going to piss your pants. Get up and use the restroom. So I will say fighting seems very scary to me, but like a class full of high schoolers seems scarier. I feel like High school's I was so easy. <laughs> High school's really? easy. It's uh-huh. so easy. Remember, Fernanda, this is Long Beach, California. Okay. The bad kids don't go to school. Oh, okay. So <laughs> that's, you know, and, and junior high is worse because they can't really leave. Like their moms drop them off. Their moms, mm-hmm. they, what do they do? Like drive home? They can't. They don't have yeah, car. okay. You're right. So whenever you taught, <laughs> taught high school, it was always like, you know, the really bad ones you don't want to listen to aren't there at all. They're ditching or they don't come to school mm-hmm. at all or okay. whatever. So high school, I found super easy. Junior high is tough because it's that middle ground where you don't okay. have a choice. Mm-hmm. You know? Like you just have to be. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. But yeah. so you did that for a while. And I because you fought professionally how for how many years again? Because it was like seven fights, right? That's I'm going to look at your topology. Early to like my last fight was 2006. I just forget when my first one, like 2001 was my first one. So like five years or something. And I saw something about it being like super, like, was it super short notice? Like some, some Oh yeah. Yeah. My first fight was in the back of a bar in San Pedro, California. It's back. Okay. Yeah. They had set up this cage and they would do this Mm. thing on like Sundays where they would have these amateur fights and yeah. my coach, my grappling coach at the time, a guy named Fabiano Iha, I'd been training like nine months. Mm-hmm. And he said, it was Friday afternoon. He goes, hey, what are you doing Sunday? And I said, nothing. <laughs> and he said, uh, okay, you want to you have a fight? Said, yeah, <laughs> why right. not? Yeah, why not? And I showed up and what they did, they didn't even weigh us in. They just had us stand up against a wall. Holy and, shit. And like you it, look it, about the same size. Yeah. Yeah. You guys look about the same size. I love and, it. <laughs> yeah. It was some dude. And I said, all right, cool. Fine. And, and. I was, there were 13 fights. I was the last one of the night of the mm-hmm. day. I'm sorry. I was during the day. And he said, um, it's going to be you and this guy. And, mm. and I, I, I didn't train for this. I, I had, I'd been grappling doing jujitsu nine months. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't even a blue belt yet. And I remember walking into the cage. It was a big one. It was a big cage, especially for, yeah. the, for a little tiny amateur event. And I said, okay, I probably have one good round in me. <laughs> there were five minute rounds. And I said two five minute rounds. And I said, well, I got one round in me. I didn't train for this thing. Yeah. So 
I wonder what, and I'll, I'll never forget. I said, I wonder what I'm going to do. And it went <laughs> ding. And the dude sprinted at me Oh no! and I hit him with a shot and dropped him immediately. I landed in side control. My coach at the time, Fabio Nija had a great far side arm bar. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. did a far side arm bar and I arm barred him in 29 seconds. Holy, how is the rush of that moment though? I can't even imagine. It's, it's not even, you don't really get it until afterward okay. because the guy ran at me. Oh, I <laughs> like you I don't like, even register what's I happening. didn't even register what was going on. <laughs> that was the good news is I was like, oh, crap. Okay, I'm in side control. I guess I'll do this armbar thing that he's always doing. And that was it. Like, Might as well. I'm here. Yeah. So I was like, you know, it, 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 it all happened so fast. I really didn't have time to process it. Mm-hmm. And then my first real fight, meaning this fight was considered an amateur, but so many people use it on their pro records. Okay. That I counted a thing called neutral grounds. And I never used to count it. And then, like, everybody who was there counted it. Okay. Like, Javier Vasquez fought there. A lot mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, Antonio McKee fought there. Oh, uh, Carl cool. Parisian fought there. So a lot yeah. of, like, local Southern California guys fought on the thing. They mm-hmm. used it in their records. I was like, all right, I'm using it on mine. So um, that's why usually I'm, 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 I'm listed as five and one. So they don't include that fight. Yeah. But, Island um, Topology, your first yeah, one is Everywhere Matt I'm five and one. Stanzel, yeah. yeah. Matt Stanzel. Yeah. In, in King of the Cage yeah. or Gladiator Challenge, I forget what it was. 2003, King of the Cage. Yeah. And so he was my first official fight. Okay. And uh, once again, it was, it was hey, do you want to fight? And I said, all right. Said, okay. <laughs> it's in, whatever it was, six weeks. And, and you know, I had to find a striking coach and do all the stuff I did. And, and it was a tough one, man. He was very tough. And mm-hmm. I won by decision. And uh, he was the only guy I didn't finish. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that's how it went. But you know, you got paid like 150 bucks mm-hmm. out of the desert, you know, like you were fighting for gas money, basically. Yeah. You didn't make any money. You didn't, it didn't, we didn't know where we were going. And I, I don't know how else to explain it. And, and, you know, people talk about my first fight was in 2001. Like we didn't know we could make any money. There yeah. were no Conor McGregor's. There were no Ronda Rousey's. There was no crossover stars. There, there weren't mm-hmm. a lot of big teams. You know, there were a lot of little tiny teams as opposed to like two or three big mega teams. And, um, that, that's how it was back then. So it was, it was like a different era of, mm-hmm. of combat sports and that, that's where I came up. Yeah. And then, um, fight quest happened was yeah. about that time, right? What coincided with sort of the end. Was that why, like you decided to stop fighting? I never decided to stop fighting. Okay. Just which, happened. which is a question. I, no, 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 please. Which is a question I get asked a lot. Like, Oh, why mm. did you quit? I didn't like, <sighs> this is hard to explain. Um, what happened was I, I got the audition for Fight Quest. Yeah. And then I got I, I did the audition at my old gym. They said at the end of the f- audition, basically, that you got it. Like the producer comes out and he goes, yeah, mm-hmm. you're our guy. Um, so, you know, don't do don't get hurt. Don't, don't do anything <laughs> else for yeah. the time being. And we started shooting November 2006. I forget when the, the audition was maybe a couple months before that. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't fight because they said, whatever you do, don't get hurt. I was like, oh shit. Okay. So I, I, I trained a bit, but I didn't, I didn't fight. And so once we started, I didn't know how long it took to do this. I didn't do television. So yeah, it, we, we filmed fight quest from November, 2006 to April, 2008. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't think I'd be away from MMA for a year and a half. I, I, I didn't know that, Yeah, but it, we did. It and so by the time I came back, um, I was starting to do commentary 
Mm-hmm. So I had one fight scheduled that the license ended up falling through. They ended up turning into a pro grappling match and I submitted the guy. And I don't know if that exists anywhere. I don't know if there's any copies of it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in Michigan. It was at the um, where the, the Pistons played. And I was supposed to be the main event. It was supposed to be an MMA fight. And then like last minute, some shenanigans got pulled and they pulled the license from it. So it had to be amateur. I couldn't fight amateur because I had a pro record in Michigan. <laughs> oh, so me. they said, okay, well, it's a pro grappling match. And the guy was like a state champion wrestler. I'm like, all right. And, I <laughs> him, and that was it. So um, that was the last time I, I competed. But mm, okay. I didn't make a conscious choice. To like, okay, but, I'm not fighting anymore. It's just, yeah. all right, I did Fight Quest. And then after Fight Quest was over, I started commentating for M1. Mm. And then after M1 was over, Bellator. I started commentating for Bellator. And yeah. then here we are. And then I turned around and I was 40. So yeah. <laughs> that, that's essentially the way it went. It wasn't a conscious yeah. decision. It was, it was just the way my life ended up. Yeah. Like the decision was made for you by the circuit. It was almost made for me. Yeah. There just wasn't room to fight anymore. I'm curious though. How was Cause like upon first glance, fight quest seems like kind of like a dream job for any martial yeah. arts lover, because you get to travel the world and try these, like experience these things that most of us don't at the same time, I would imagine it was quite grueling like physically um, to go through all of that like how was that the whole like experience um the the harder parts yeah to be honest with you was when a style wasn't that combative Mm, okay and we had to figure out like what to do because when they say you're training boxing in mexico city Mm. okay I'm in there with like Olympic boxers that are kicking my ass from pillar to post <laughs> yeah. and doing boxing workouts. And, but it, it was easy. Like in, in that sense, like mm-hmm. what do you do? Box this guy. All right. We did, I wasn't sitting there going, how are we going to make a show out of this? Which, yes. W- w- in doing styles in India and in Korea and stuff that they don't hit each other typically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That's what the, yeah. the F am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, I, you know, I don't want to hurt yeah. this kid, yeah. but we don't have a choice or, you know, like, those were complicated in mm. boxing, Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu. Like, okay, go got it. Like it sucks, right? It sucks to be, you know, on a room full of black belts and they're taking turns, kicking your ass for three hours, <laughs> which is a true story. Um, uh, but, it, but, it, but it was like, it was hard, but I, but I know that path. Mm, yeah. Right? I know sense. how to just get my ass kicked for like three mm-hmm. hours or whatever. <laughs> I don't know how to do a, a competitive fight in a style that doesn't have competitive fighting. Okay. I, I don't know what to tell you. So those were were much more challenging for me. Yeah. I was reading somewhere that like and your co-host was saying something about how Israel was really freaking intense. Yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. <laughs> like, yeah. That is like borderline psychotic. The, the oh, his was terrible. And yeah. and I yeah, and that's the number one episode I get asked about all the time is Israel, Israel, Israel. Because he was with these civilians mm. and the the lead instructor was a woman named Avavit. Mm. And I don't know if that's her first name. I don't remember if that was her full name or her first name. I don't mm-hmm. remember at the time. And they were just psychopaths. Oh, God. Ugh. I was with the Israeli military. Okay. So they were like. Yeah. I mean, they they just kind of put me through like mm-hmm. the same drills every other military. So I mean, I'm, I'm climbing over walls and running and, and all this yeah. stuff. And okay. Sure. Now, I was never. The reason they did it that way is Doug, my co-host, was already in the military. Mm. So that wasn't a new experience for him. He was already in the army. So I wasn't. So they wanted to put me there. Mm. But when it came to the martial arts and stuff, I was a way better fighter martial artist than any of the guys I trained with. And mm-hmm. they didn't try to like, you know, yeah. punk me or prove they were better. I mean, they didn't. So it was, the experience for me was like learning military stuff, which, yeah. you know, sleeping in a barracks. I had never done any mm-hmm. of that stuff. So that was the interesting part to me. 
and then the fighting stuff we added on to it, but it wasn't, you know, um, it was a totally different experience for, for him and me. Yeah. And then at the end when I had to fight all of them in a row or whatever the deal was, it was just like, <laughs> Oh my God. You know, so, so a lot of it, the, the, there were one of two things. There were fights we were either supposed to compete mm-hmm. in or win or however you want to put it. And then there were just like things we were supposed to endure mm, okay. where you're going to fight 10 guys in a row or you're going to fight mm-hmm. six guys at once. And like, you don't win a fight against six people. Yeah. You just got to get survive. through it without dying. <laughs> yeah. And so your body and your brain just do different things mm-hmm. in those instances. When, when it's fighting five guys, I'm not trying to win. I'm trying to live. So, you, you, your your instincts are different. What you're doing yeah. is different, and 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 so whether I had to endure something or win something, that changed how I approached it and how I saw it and how I performed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally different. And then you mentioned you after that you you migrated to to commentary, which uh, you did for Bellator for many years, and obviously yeah. later the UFC and one. But how was that like? Because commentary, like it's it's just such a specific job. I don't know if like. I believe that some people are just like better suited naturally for it or like practice will get anybody to be good at it. But was it like, was it an immediate, were you immediately like comfortable? And I like, it was it something that spoke to you immediately or was it something that you really needed to work at? That, I mean, other people said I was good right off the bat. Mm. I didn't feel comfortable. Like a great example is when I, when I took over the WWE, when I did my first show, mm. Fernanda, I was freaking out in my head. I was like, I was just like, oh <laughs> shit. Like it was just, you know, the producers got him Kevin Dunn and he was like, all right, one hour and 30 seconds. And I had like a mini panic attack. I was like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. At the end, everybody yeah. went, oh my God, amazing job. And I was like, really? what? Like, what? <laughs> you know, like, so there's always this disparity between how you feel you did and how everybody else thinks you did. So yeah. the first time I did it, I it felt I, I knew I was doing better than most people their first time. I okay. knew I was natural. I've always been a, a, a natural public speaker. Mm-hmm. I'd always I taught kids. So I'm used yeah, to speaking in right. front of groups. I'm used mm-hmm. to explaining something to somebody who doesn't get it. And you know, so teaching helped me out a lot. And um, so I was better than I knew I was better than most people doing it the first time, but I didn't know how good I was or what the yeah. deal was. And then and and I did my first one and the day, a day later, when I flew back home, the 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 guy who hired me, who's in charge mm. of their production, goes, "All right, you're our guy." Oh, that's there awesome. you go. You know, and so all right, apparently I did well. You know, <laughs> and um, and then what I was a bunch of the people from M1, which is where I started. Mm-hmm. M1 started basically becoming a, a, a Russia only promotion. They they weren't mm. doing any United States anymore, and so they were kind of, you know winding down their, their, their U S TV presence. Mm-hmm. And, and one, I mean, Bellator was starting up, they needed a commentator and a bunch of the people that knew me from M one had gone over to Bellator. Mm. So when they needed somebody, they, they said, you got to get Jimmy Smith. Mm. And I, I got a call and I knew everyone on the roster. <laughs> so yeah. that helped. And, um, I, uh, did a phone interview, flew out to Saratoga, New York or something, met everybody. And they're like, all right, you're our guy. And that's how I started with Bellator and then, and then, then the UFC briefly. And then now WWE. That's how I, this is a nerdy question. Cause I'm a nerdy individual. Like I'm always curious. How was your, I know like, for instance, uh, guys like Anik, he like has tons of research pages and pages of notes. And some people, uh, you know, some people are more neurotic about, uh, the study. Some people are less. So how was your process to commentating? Did you gather like, 
pages and pages of notes? Did you study compulsively? How was kind of your like preparation for your for your broadcasts? There's a huge difference between doing play by play. Yeah, and caller. Yeah, that's right. Huge. So. Anik is play-by-play. He does a mm-hmm. ton of research, has a ton of notes, all this stuff, you know, someone's own All-American and this, this, and this, and blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. His sister's name's Jennifer and his wife is, <laughs> he's got to know that stuff because it's yeah. the filler for when so- something isn't happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're doing color, you're more I need to know yeah. a few things, mm-hmm. personal, whatever. Nine times out of 10, you're locked into what's happening. Yes. Like right. if, if it's not, if their sister's not in the octagon, I'm not going to talk about her. It's mm-hmm. not my job to know now, so the fact that they were an All-American at the University of Minnesota is important because it's going to mm-hmm. show the takedown and all stuff. But if it's all this other stuff, mm-hmm. who they fought last, who they fought this, and I know those things, but they're, they, they're hardly ever useful. So what I learned is that I know the stuff and it's mm-hmm. there. And also working the desk for Fox or, or um, wherever, post-show and pre-show, I did a lot mm-hmm. of research. Okay. In the fight, you're almost always locked into the fight. So okay. I always did my prep. I have my notes. I do my research, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I do a lot more play-by-play than I did color. And I do a lot more on the desk than I do um, than I did when I was calling a live fight. Because in a live fight, you're locked into the live fight. Yeah. And my worst fear on earth is that they would throw to me about a something or some fact, or, and I wouldn't know. Mm. And you just look like an idiot. Yeah. I am not allowing that hat to happen to me ever. So... <laughs> I, I know the fighters backwards and forwards, but as far as, yeah. as note-taking and all that stuff, it's really play-by-play you do a lot. For the WWE, I do a lot of prep. Mm-hmm. And also because it's something I'm not as familiar with as I am fighting. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it was much easier doing color for combat sports than it was doing play-by-play for professional wrestling. It's, it's, it's a different world. But Anik is, is a prep guy, but he mm-hmm. always does play-by-play. So he's yeah, just different. a different yeah. world. Yeah. Did you, you mentioned briefly, like, and I, I want to touch on it in a little bit, but did you get nervous before MMA broadcasts where you were more comfortable? The openings always make me nervous. Okay. Right. So, so when they say, so it's, it's, let's say John Anik and he goes, you know, welcome to Raleigh, North Carolina. I am John Anik alongside Jimmy Smith and whomever. Um, uh, great main event, Jimmy. The featherweight division has always been fantastic, but tonight the Kings collide. What do you think? And I just go, I got to, you know, turn to the mm-hmm. camera. I can't look at any notes because it's not in front of me. Yeah, yeah. So it's the one time you don't have any help. Yeah. Now the, my notes generally, I don't need them, but mm. It's the one time where I can't look. I got to look at the camera. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, not me, um, I've been there with somebody spaced. Uh, just spaced. And, oh, and they go, uh, <laughs> they, they can't remember who's in the main event. Because uh, you don't have any help. You don't have any yeah. help. You're looking at a camera. You're not looking at somebody else. And the monitor we have that shows who the person is and all stuff is below the camera. Mm-hmm. So you can sneak a look down there, but everyone can see you're looking down. And <sighs> you look stupid. Yeah. So, That's uh, yeah, I, I haven't had that happen. But it's the only time that can happen. So... That always, the opening of the show is always a nerve-wracking thing. And then fighter interviews can be a little nerve-wracking, but it's more on the fighter than me, mm-hmm. right? So if he does something crazy and wild and stupid or tries <laughs> to jump over the out, like, that's not on me. That's on him. So yeah. it's not like the story is going to be about me. So the open to the show always gave me a little bit of nerves. After that, it was easy. Yeah, Still does. Still does. It isn't any different now. 
I don't even like I but that's obviously different. Like you've been doing this for a thousand years and you do shit on camera, but like it just makes me so nervous exactly that moment. Because even when you're not looking at your notes, just knowing that you can is such that's a psychological nice. like crutch. Like they're there and I can have them if I need them, but not knowing I I would I would absolutely be the person who blanks in front of the camera. It's just it looks so terrifying to me. Uh so you and, and now, then, even after you know you left uh, the UFC, and you have still have your show, you're still doing MMA, even though you're still doing WWE. And so, how long has it? It's like two decades of MMA in your life, basically, right? Or yeah. combat sports in general. Twenty three years, yeah. How do you not get sick of it, Jimmy? It's been twelve for me. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, no, you're making me very, very sad, Fernando. No, um, yeah, no, you are, you are. I'm old as dirt, and it's okay. I'm at so, twelve. I'm, I'm at twelve. It's not. You understand? No spring chicken. Well, it always, it always changes. Mm. So I guess that that helps in that it's, it's always, it always changes. Mm-hmm. And I've never been like a jaded person mm. about what I do for a living. Okay. Because I, I've seen those people mm-hmm. that they're gonna go call an NBA game and they're looking like, oh god, another, you know. yeah. And I'm like, dude, you are talking about a sport for two hours, man. You're not, <laughs> you're not climbing under a fucking house. You're not doing all the other things other people have to. Get. And also, having been a teacher, man, you're not mm-hmm. dealing with kids. All that. whatever, whatever, like job you don't want, you don't have that job. Mm-hmm. And I think people who don't appreciate what I get to do for a living mm. have a problem, man. It's like, do you realize that I sit, you know, oh, it's a three hour show. I, yeah. People, I don't know, work at airport security for 10 hours straight. And yeah. I'm not one of those people. So I don't know. It's, I, 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 I don't feel jaded. I, I don't, mm-hmm. I try not to allow myself to be jaded. I try not, I try to appreciate the fact that I do something that the vast majority of people just don't get to do. Yeah. And I've, that, that, I've never forgotten that. So there yeah. are aspects of MMA, I guess, Fernando, that get frustrating. Yes. Where, you know, the same problems or same issues or same things that people have been complaining about for 20 years or whatever they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember, yeah, no, that's not the first time anyone said this. You just don't want to fix it. You know, so certain things about it get frustrating, I guess. But but the idea of being in MMA or in professional wrestling or sports entertainment hey man i'm grateful to have the ability to do it for because for a year i didn't so this is is definitely it's never been something i took for granted ever yeah but yeah as somebody who you know was a fighter for a while and who has been talking and interacting and being among fighters for all these years you did mention the frustrating aspects of mma like now still like for all the ways that things have improved like you said like back then maybe people didn't really have even an, a career plan and and now like the avenues i guess are different uh but still like there's so many things right there's so much about the dynamics of the sport that often feels in my opinion exploitative uh when it comes to the fighters and things like that like is it you know is it hard for you is the, is it are there part like parts or aspects of your job that make you kind of like, you know, dealing with all of this all the time that make you kind of like, yeah, like frustrated or, or upset that this is still the reality of fighters. Yes. Mm. But fighters know it too. Okay. And what I've always said, and I said it today on my show, we're talking about fighter pay is look, they got to fix it. I Mm -hmm. can't 
I can't fix it. Fans can't fix it. Twitter can't fix it. I, I don't know what to tell you. If fighters aren't going to help themselves, uh, what are you going to say? Where, you know, um, in American football, it's they, they don't make what they make because fans had a letter writing campaign in the 70s. It's the, the, the players themselves got together and organized and, that's why there's an, an NFL players union, NBA players union, and Major League Baseball players union. That's you know, no one on social media made the owners do what they did and make free agency a thing. The the players themselves had to stand up and go, "We're not taking this, and we're going to change things." Mm-hmm. And so, uh, one of the expressions that I, I I use a lot in life, and it's a little harsh, but it's you deserve what you accept. And I I don't know what to tell people about. Oh, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? Because Dana White's not going to have a change of heart because he feels bad. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. work that way, you know? And the owners in the NFL didn't have a change. Oh, they suddenly felt bad. They didn't do that. They paid as little as they possibly could for as long as they possibly could until the, the players themselves said, we're not taking this anymore. Mm-hmm. And until that happens, I, I can only be so sympathetic. I can, there's only so much I can do. And so that's the attitude I have about it. It's frustrating, but I'm, I also can't fix it. Mm-hmm. Last thing before I let you go, you mentioned, because I was always wondering about it. I remember you tweeted at the time that you were warned before starting uh, your 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 job with the WWE, like, like don't, don't take things too seriously on the internet. And you said something about like, dude, I'm used to MMA, like I, I'm prepared right. for this. And it ended up that you, that you had a very actually uh, good experience and a good reception. But what you did mention being so nervous uh, before your first broadcast. And I don't, I don't really know pro wrestling though. Well, like, it's not a universe that I'm familiar with, but right. the fans seem very, <laughs> very intense. So were you nervous like to, to start like that whole, uh, to, to put yourself there in that out there in that different capacity and something that you weren't necessarily that familiar with, like how, uh, you know, how big of a leap, how, how nervous were you making that jump? Oh, I expected to get killed. <laughs> I expected to get slain by every pro wrestling fan. I expected, you know, it's like another great expression, you know, blessed is he who expects nothing for he is never disappointed. I, that's kind of how I saw it. I assumed the fans would hate me. I assumed that I was going to get slayed online. I assumed all that. Like, so the fact that I was, you know, embraced by the fans is weird. It's still weird. So mm-hmm. I don't expect it. I don't look for it. Um, and I've just been in MMA so long that 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 I also, you know, you, whether or not you keep your job mm-hmm. is reliant on the opinions of two to three people. That's yeah. it. And some idiot on Twitter is not one of those people. I got almost universal praise when I was in the UFC. I lasted a year. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that praise didn't help me when I was in the UFC. So praise isn't going to kill me or, or, or criticism isn't going to kill me when I'm in the WWE. It's like, well, you know. It didn't help me last time, so I'm not worried about, you know, kind of like the sky falling in on me when fans hate you. Because when they loved me, it didn't mean anything. So you you just have to stay even keeled about all that stuff. That's how I see it. Yeah. That's very healthy. Admirable. I wish I was a little more. That's the lesson I'm going to take with me (laughs) for the future. That random person on Twitter saying mean things, uh, I shouldn't care about them. I still don't see his name on the checks. (laughs) That's absolutely. That's it. You know, like Vince McMahon's not on Twitter. Yeah. His opinion matters. Mm-hmm. That's it. So don't know what to tell you. That's, that's how you have to approach <laughs> in order to survive. That's how I see it. That's the lesson for all of us to be more like Jimmy in this life. <laughs> I'm going to let you go, Jimmy. I know you have 
all the thousands of things that you do to do. It's really impressive. Thank you so much for your time. I usually tell people like, oh, I don't have anything you want to plug, but I'm pretty sure people know where to find you. <laughs> I have enough. I'm good. Thank you. I'm about to interview Anthony Smith for, for ESPN yeah. International, for, ES, for, for USC Fight Camp. So keep an eye out for my interview with Anthony Smith at some point. All awesome. right. Thank you so much. Thank you at home, the listeners. I always thank a random person, Jimmy. I'm going to thank Tom Hardy today because it's his 44th birthday and I love him. So thank you, Tom Hardy. This has been the best camp of my life. I will see you all next week. Bye.